Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace, grace, grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouth and in our speaking. Grace be in our heart and in our understanding. And grace be in our ends and at our departing. So I hope you find what you're looking for here today. And um, know that we're here to honor love and honesty and freedom. And uh, for you to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I'm not going to say anything else about this. Barbara has done a wonderful job. Um, the anxiety that some of us have is that we, in my memory of over 30 years, have not sponsored an event off campus. And so we are co-sponsoring this event with Beth Yeshura. And we debated, I talked to the rabbi off and on about this, about having something here, something there, and it was just too complicated. So I hope that you will take the time to go to, uh, first of all, this afternoon to register, and then on Thursday night to Beth Yeshura and to uh, hear this remarkable woman. Uh, Frida Hale sent me um, a link to an article in the paper that I will put in the summary that goes out on Tuesday so that all of you can, can read it before then. So, okay, I want you to open your mind, the door of your mind, just a little bit, uh, or a lot, and be aware that my goal during this time is to warp that door <laughs> so that it doesn't shut completely again. Because I, I want to subvert your thinking in uh, matters of religion and um, spirituality so that we can mo move more and more into uh, the area that spiritual teachers refer to as enlightenment. I think if we all lived enlightened lives out there, the whole world would be a better, better place. Paradoxically, the road to enlightenment comes from a willingness to go into the dark. And it comes from a willingness also to give up that which we prize so much. So last week in here, I used an example uh, that I got probably more questions about than I have in any class I've taught in, the, in, in, in a while. And so I want to begin today by clarifying that, um, or trying to clarify it. Uh, the, this is a difficult thing to do because the matter is deliberately cloudy, and I can understand that why there were some questions about it last week. So the example that I used last week about understanding religion and spirituality had to do with stained glass. And the title of this class today is Stained Glass, the Self, and the Problem of God. That we ought to be able to do in 40 minutes. <laughs> Let's talk about glass. Glass... Glass, glass, this is plastic, has had a tremendous impact on our lives, on our world, and it's had a tremendous impact on our understanding of the world. Glass has always been around since creation because it was part of the heat process when sand and silica and things get together, so volcanoes and creation fires and all that sort of stuff. And the first glass that humans encountered was colored. And uh, so the Egyptians learned how to capitalize on the process of making these colorful objects, and they were used as jewelry, as objects of art, and eventually as small containers. It was considered something to be ornamental, glass was, or, or decorative. And at the very beginning, glass was not looked, at, looked through as we are used to it. Glass was looked at. And if you had asked an early Egyptian to describe glass, they would likely have said that um, 
It's a mysterious, magical thing that inspires wonder. Uh, I got that quote from John Tucker's book, Zero Theology. And uh, I'm going to use John Tucker's illustration uh, now about glass, but it, these are my words and my construction. It was just his idea. He wouldn't recognize what I'm saying. So as I said, glass has always been around. Egyptians learned how to make glass about 4,000 B.C. They made colored glass. And it was not until sometime in the first century that Romans began to make clear glass. But they didn't use it because they didn't know how to mass produce it. It wasn't used in houses until around the 17th century. Okay? That's not that long ago. That up until the 17th century, we didn't use glass like this. So, um, it was common in England beginning in the 17th century to use glass that way. And from about 1100 or a little before until that period, 1700, colored glass and clear glass coexisted. They, they, the colored glass was in much greater production and used more widely than clear glass up until 1700. Colored glass appeared in churches. And um, clear glass played a role outside of churches in homes starting in the 17th century. And Tucker suggests that this set up the very innocent development that um, would become the conflict between church and science, religion and science. Now, Tucker doesn't claim that this split between clear glass and colored glass caused that division, but it was certainly one that planted the seeds for it to unfold. Tucker says the conflict was over the true purpose of light and each promoted a very different idea of what it meant to be enlightened. Okay, you follow this? The church had one idea of enlightenment and outside the church there was another idea of enlightenment, the age of enlightenment. From the church's side, and this is mainly something that came from the Benedictines, stained glass, what we call stained glass or colored glass, painted glass, it is painted um, in many instances, um, came to express the glory of God. Now, I personally will testify to this. I have repeatedly in here professed my love for Gothic architecture and the great cathedrals of Europe. Even when I was a child, I would pour through my parents subscribed to National Geographic. You know, National Geographic is that magazine that collects in the closet and you move it from house to house but never read it. We did that for a long time. But I would hover over the pictures of the cathedrals and I just love them. Um, and, and I can recall as vividly as some people can recall their first birth of their first baby or looking at the Grand Canyon for the first time or something like that. The first time I walked into one of these great cathedrals in Europe, it was this cathedral in Toledo, Spain. Um, <clears throat> My involutional comment when I walked into this place is place was holy Toledo. <laughs> I can't help it. I have a condition. This cathedral was started in 550, folks. 550. It was completed in 1211. That's why it looks like a hodgepodge of, of things. That is to say, this thing was completed 300 years before Columbus discovered America. It was completed 500 years before the founding of this country. They got a lot of old stuff over there. By the way, I'm talking about uh, Christian art and architecture today. Um, if you go to Turkey, uh, you will see in the mosque 
the tile work and the glazed artwork in Turkey that, that equals this. In Cordoba, there is a mosque that is so huge, they built a cathedral inside it. I'm serious. I mean, a church inside of it. It is incredible, the artwork that exists in these places. And it never fails that when I go into one of these places, my, my, my response is when I look at it and I think, um, where did this come from? Who thought of this? What, what draw on the collective unconscious did these people before... Google and AI and YouTube and all that sort of stuff. Where did this come from? Now understand that the glass was part of this architecture. This is one of the windows in the cathedral in uh, Toledo. This is their big rose window. St. Augustine wrote about um, the glasses saying it's uh, for the glorification of God since God also is light. Now, you likely know that most people could not read during this time of history. So these stained glass windows, many of them are story windows. They were used to depict scenes from scripture, and it was the way that people learned. Not all windows, to be sure. Some were just absolutely awesome in their magnificence. So um, I cheated. This is not from Toledo. This is from Chartres Cathedral in France. Chartres Cathedral also completed in 1211. 1211. You get this dating. Chartres, they have the most complete collection of stained glass windows in all of the Christian world in this cathedral. No, none were bombed. So, and here's a great thing about this. You can go to the great cathedrals, the Toledo, uh, the cathedral in Toledo, the one in Lyon, Spain, to this one, and you can take a virtual tour on your computer so that you can go around the cathedral and you can see these stained glass depictions up close uh, if you want to do that. Sometime when I am on campus and I have an open hour, I will go up and just sit in the sanctuary across the way. It's like sitting inside a giant kaleidoscope. It's wonderful. And uh, except for the two windows that I disparagingly refer to as the Johnny and Charlie windows, those referring John Wesley and Charles Wesley, um, the stained glass windows in the St. Paul's Cathedral, we only have four-story windows um, on the north side and the south side of the nave. And those story windows contain various scenes from um, the scripture. There's the comforting Christ, there's the good shepherd, there's the resurrection, there's the ascension, um, there's Moses, there's Ruth the gleaner, um, there's Christ in the temple. And then on the east and west ends of the building, there's the Gethsemane window and the Christ window, which is the rose window up on this side of the, of the church. Um, now, these windows are, are not um, ancient, ancient windows. I mean, the building is not ancient. But they are in the style of these um, glorious windows that you see in the European cathedrals. Um, so nothing matches those you see in Toledo or Lyon, Spain. And I encourage you, if you like this thing well enough, to, to go take a virtual tour. So when glass became stable and clear enough, it could be used in homes. And that changed the way that people experienced home life. Because up until the 17th century, homes didn't have windows that you look through that let light in. They had some things for ventilation and that sort of thing. Um, but homes were... Um, the windows became like frames. As a matter of fact, we call a window frame and a picture frame the same thing. They were used to, as pictures. And Van Gogh used to put a window frame on his easel so that he could imagine what the scene would look like to, to paint it as if looking through a window. So the home became a place from which the outer world could be seen Light could come in through the window, and uh, it protected the people inside the house from elements. And uh, if you wanted privacy, just close the curtain. And that was the 
function of the window. So this development in the creation and use of clear glass parallel the move <clears throat> where enlightenment came to be more associated with science and progress. Stained glass was relegated to a bygone era. Clear glass is modern, stained glass is old. Now, you could make similar analogies between things like prose and poetry. Prose is descriptive language, and poetry is ironically language you use when things can't be put in words. Right? It's that kind of thing. So the Protestant Reformation comes in Europe, and um, the Protestants did the be their best to get rid of all the iconography that they could. And as a matter of fact, you go in the cathedrals, the great cathedrals in uh, England, and many of the faces of the statues have been hacked off. And they did break glass windows and all that sort of stuff. But you can still see where they have not been repaired. And, and then the message of the Enlightenment was religious truth can only be obtained rationally. And I would say they succeeded. Stained glass has been relegated to an ornamental role, not as to a vital part of our spiritual religious development. If you have a dirty window or a cracked window, that's a failed window. So we now look at those who got their guidance and sustenance from stained glass in the same way we view the beliefs of those we label primitive religions. They had a failed religion, an inadequate religion. In 1972, I got to take a sabbatical, and I went to Harvard. And I have to tell you, that was one of the headiest times of my life. I loved it, <clears throat> pardon me, and uh, I learned a lot. It's a great time. I, I got to uh, take class from uh, Paul Tillich's successor, Gordon Kaufman, whom uh, some of you know, a uh, Mennonite fellow, wrote a great book about the theology of God. It was just a heady time. I went to church at Harvard Church. Peter Gomes was a preacher at the Harvard Church. Peter Gomes, an African-American man who eventually came out with being gay and stood for the gays at Harvard and wrote many books that I own. I love Peter Gomes. And um, 30 years after coming back from Harvard, I went back to perform a wedding, Robin Roddy's wedding. And um, so we took a trip into uh, Boston from where we were staying, and I boldly said, hey, I'll take you all on a tour of the Harvard campus. I didn't recognize the place. <laughs> I got lost. I had to ask for directions. And then it occurred to me, if Harvard campus had changed in the last 30 years as much as Rice campus had changed, no wonder I couldn't find my way around. But we did see Harvard Church. And I saw a sign, it was the beginning of the new semester, that Peter Gomes is going to be preaching. So I said, hey, let's all go to church on Sunday, which we did. I mean, those who wanted to. They're really religious people. <laughs> um, <clears throat> those of you who don't know, Peter Gomes is an amazing man. And I'm so grateful to him in so many ways. I was glad that he was preaching that particular Sunday. Of course, he didn't, he didn't remember me. But we went to church there to hear him preach. And I uh, was stunned by the starkness of the place. I had changed so much that instead of that being heady and wow and enlightened, I thought, whoa, there's something missing here. There is no iconography in this place, except for a small cross on the pulpit. Now, follow me carefully here. There's another church in Houston that doesn't have any iconography. Know what it is? Lakewood. 
Not much difference. So we live in a world where windows are supposed to be clean things that we can see through and we can see the world as it really is. And I understand clean windows, dirty windows get in the way of seeing clearly. The point I'm trying to make is that seeing the world clearly in this way is not, from a spiritual point of view, the only way to see the world, nor is it necessarily the best way to see the world. It is a worldview that tends to promote all sorts of fundamentalism because it makes the essential ingredient of religious life belief. The clear glass window approach to religion and spirituality makes belief central. And, and the, the religious fundamentalists believe that religious truths can withstand the light of reason because they're true in the same sense as scientific truths are true, and they're not, never pretended to be. Or they take it that these religious spiritual truths are so different that they're enemies and they have to be fought. Either way, they're locked inside a world that is constructed by what they believe and their security is based on the certainty of those beliefs. Okay, <clears throat> now, why spend time talking about stained and clear glass? Because every one of you, including your teacher, live in a clear glass world. We even look at stained glass through a clear glass lens. We don't inhabit the world that Carl Jung inhabited when he was asked, do you believe in God? And he said, no, I know God. Most of us don't live in that world. That's my point. Jesus didn't know about God. Jesus knew God. And we know about God, or worse, we think we do. We've been taught more, I think it's in our DNA, that any window that is not clear and clean is a failed window. As a matter of fact, the word stained has come to have a negative moral connotation. You have a stain on that dress, you know, get it off. That's the way we think. They, these windows that I've shown you, they may be pretty to look at, but they're not useful. So people who do reside in a stained glass world become literalist. They are dishonest when it comes to the facts of the scientific world. These are the people who doubt the efficacy of vaccines, who don't want any research done on gun control. Um, they want to argue about the, that the stories about Jesus in the, in the New Testament are literally true. Jesus really walked on water popped up out of the ground after three days. People who live only in the clear, 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 clean glass world miss the mystical nature of life that Jesus talked about. Now, to be sure, Jesus is not the only mystical teacher who, or teacher who taught from a place of mysticism. But for those of us who choose to identify with the Christian religion or the Jesus tradition, there is an indisputable fact. Jesus lived in a stained glass world. That was his worldview. Jesus was a Jewish mystic from the Hebrew tradition. And if you want to know better about that stained glass worldview <clears throat> that Jesus lived in, in Bruce Chilton's book, Rabbi Jesus, somebody mentioned this book to me at the last happy hour we had that they were reading this book. Who did that? I don't know if you remember. This will blow your mind. It'll give you a different understanding of, of Jesus. 
Now, I, I do think that the teachings of Jesus are unique. However, his teachings, particularly the parables, are not things to be believed or doubted. They're traps that paradoxically lead to freedom. You parse that sentence out later, I hope. <laughs> Here's another paradox. This is stained glass world now I'm trying to see. The truth that Jesus taught, the truth he said would set us free, is indeed freely given, but it's only given to those who get in a position to receive it. Either through <laughs> a daily spiritual practice or um, some kind of traumatic event. Those are your options. So I'll give you an example of the kind of trap Jesus set for people. Now, though, I mean, you refer to two of his parables today, but um, though many of his parables fit this description of what I'm trying to illustrate, this one in Luke is perhaps the best example of catch-22 or double-blind teaching that Jesus ever offered. It's just delicious. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax man. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid like this tax man. I fast twice a week and tithe all my income. I do have a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, and said, God, give mercy, forgive me a sinner. Jesus commented this tax man, not the other one home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. If you are content to be yourself. And we're going to give considerable time to this going forward. Because this is the gateway to the stained glass world. It's a gateway to knowing God, is to know yourself. Thomas Merton wrote, There's only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. If I find God, I will find myself, and if I find my true self, I will find God. Now, given the fact that every person in this room, including me, is trapped in a clear glass world. We can't go back. I mean, in a stained glass world. We can't, we're trapped in a clear glass world. We can't go back. What are we going to do? Well, <clears throat> first of all, we begin with the fact that this journey we're on isn't a journey. Embrace that. We are already where we need to be. We just don't realize it. And I'm asking you to take this on faith. You don't have to go somewhere to get to heaven. You don't have to die to get to heaven. Jesus said this is it. Now I want to amplify on that just a member, just a bit. So we started this theme last year, and I said I was using as my palette uh, Ken Wilber's magnificent integral theory of everything. Okay, so um, I don't bring that painter's, that's a painter's palette. Uh, you don't bring a painter's palette out every day to look at it. You just be aware that it's used, that the painter's using this palette to paint the picture with. Okay, it's here. And on the integral theory palette, there are all this data about uh, levels of development and about stages of awareness and all these other things that I try to sneak into these talks from time to time, every Sunday. So we know about stages of development and we know about growth and what things that we can experience on the human journey. So we are involved in a journey of transformation, according to Wilbur. 
using these stages and levels of awareness and other things, integral theory, complexity about groups that we're part of, and awareness about, gee, if I'd been born in India, I'd be different, and all that, all that sort of stuff is there. So we are on that journey of awareness. Oh, wow, I didn't seen that before. That's part of the journey. But the journey metaphor is not helpful <clears throat> if it obscures the fact that we are already where we need to be and have what we need to have. <clears throat> so once we embrace that, then the journey becomes a journey of awakening, awakening, more and more awakening. So this is why we begin to talk about how awareness is the first and essential step on the religious path to make the human journey. And I keep stressing it's a human journey because it's not a religious journey. It's not a spiritual journey. We'll use religion and spirituality to aid our journey into humanness. Right? But you're not trying to be a better Christian. Um, and I know journey is misleading, but my experience is that when it comes to awareness, I am on a journey. And uh, it, it's a journey that uh, is... Uh, leads us into wonder, it leads us into otherness, it's a journey that is preparing us to be present to presence. Now how, you say, I hope, do we do this? This is, a, I'm a seven on the Enneagram and that's seven, is a, that's a classic seven question. How can I do this, what can I do? It drive my spiritual director and therapist crazy. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And uh, I'm going to give you an example of what to do. Um, <clears throat> this past Wednesday, this Ash Wednesday, in this very room, we began the day at 7.30 with an Ash Wednesday breakfast that we've had here for 30-plus years. And the speaker of that breakfast was Dr. Jim Bankson. And he suggested a discipline to keep during Lent which I thought was a brilliant idea. I'm recommending it to you. He suggested that we keep a hope journal. Now, I've kept a gratitude journal for decades, but he suggested that every day you find something in your life about which to be hopeful, and you write that down, or about which you are hopeful, and write that down. Something that gives you a reason for hope. So uh, I started keeping my hope journal. You're on that journal. You're in that journal. This gathering is a reason for hope. In spite of all the right-wing insanity that's going on in this country, there's this oasis. That's hopeful. On, on Friday, uh, friends and loved ones gathered to celebrate the life and memory of Tissa Baker. And in a world where there is so much animosity and division, that gathering was filled with love and friendship and memory and hope and joy. That's hopeful. Our spiritual practice are, are the ways we journey to and with God and as we do so, we discover all along that we've been in God. So awareness is the first step on. It's the door through which we must journey in the human journey. It sounds easy, but it, 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 it isn't. Because over and over and over, we have to be reminded that we're not here. We're somewhere else. We're not present. We're thinking about last night or tomorrow or later this afternoon. But if we become aware, then we get to be open to wonder and then otherness, and we learn, hopefully, to welcome the stranger without, and that helps us welcome the stranger within, and um, that sets us up to be present to presence. And folks, that's our agenda for weeks to come. And the problem is that knowing self and God is a stained glass issue. And, and you live in a stained glass world, and I mean in clear glass world, and I do, and, and I want to warn you, don't think that you can extrapolate yourself from this dilemma by saying, okay, I'm just going to look at this in a stained glass way. That's a clear glass statement. 
It's a trap. I have several times used this quote from John Dominic Crossan. He says, my point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we're now dumb enough <laughs> to take them literally. One of the clear and consistent teachings of Jesus is that we are who we are in God. He saw people not as who they thought they were, not as who society said they were, but he saw them in relationship to his understanding of who they were in God. He saw himself that way so that he could see others that way. For example, he saw the Samaritan woman, not as a fallen sinner or someone from a hated race or as a woman, but as a person whose identity was as a child of God, just as himself. So one of the foundation stones on which we stand on this journey is who we are is who we are in God. You are who you are in God. So are all the people around you, so all the people out there, even the jerks who don't know how to drive. Or use their turn signal. <laughs> and you have to, the, the spiritual work is drawing that circle bigger, bigger, and bigger, 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 until it includes the cosmos. You are who you are in God, but no more. Now that deals with inflated ego. And you are who you are in God, no, no more, no less, and that deals with false humility. We're all on the same plane. And the moment you put somebody up or put somebody down, you lose it. We're all on the same principle is equanimity. Now, the other side of that coin is coming to know who God is. And I want to begin to parse that out by returning to one of the favorite stories in the Jesus narrative. It's the story that we refer to as the parable of the prodigal son. <clears throat> Our clear glass world paradigm doesn't want stains on anything. The divisiveness in the world right now, school board, book, politics, all that sort of stuff, is about some form of morality. Who's in, who's out. That's what's splitting the Methodist church right now. We got purity on our side and you don't. So I want to approach this story today only from the standpoint of understanding the self. This is that we could do another, but this is just about the self. So this parable can help us understand the, the inner person for whom morality laws were created. It would not be necessary to have a law against murder or stealing or adultery or lying or any of those other delicious things if they were not part of our personality that they were not part of what every person in this room has some capacity to do. Now don't worry, I'm not going to tell people about you, but we're all like that. Right? So in Jesus' time, uh, those who were labeled as the scribes and Pharisees, which we give a bad rap to that they don't deserve, they, were, they tried to avoid this inner part of humanity. And uh, in the painting, this is the elder brother, and he's a stand-in for morality. He's a stand-in for the scribes and Pharisees. And unless we confront that part of us, we ain't going to make it. So, as I said, in Jesus' time, the scribes and the Pharisees were really good, law-abiding people. They kept the law. And it was precisely their success at this that caused them to fail to include their shadow side. And when they couldn't include their shadow side, guess what? They couldn't include anybody else. 
So that's one of the reasons that Jesus said that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to make it into the kingdom of God before those people because they knew their shadow side. Go back to that, that parable that he told about the publican and the, and, the, and the Pharisee. The moment you identify with any one of those two characters, you're trapped. You have to have a worldview big enough to embrace the whole picture. Now this parable, which many say should be called the parable of the prodigal father because he is the prodigal one with his inclusive, compassionate love. The two brothers are two sides of one person. And these two men, people, individuals, reside inside each of us. We all have the prodigal. We all have the elder brother. And only when we embrace the elder brother can the prodigal son really come in. Now, obviously, this is going to require giving up some moral self-esteem. This process of self-confrontation reflects a commitment to the journey, and it's the work of a lifetime. It's a life commitment, right? You get on the journey, you can't go back. Jesus said that. He said, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back. That's what he meant, is that you put your step on this journey, and you just keep, you keep going in this. You can't, uh, this is the way Jesus put it, and this is from Luke 10. Put your hand to the, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. You can't put God's kingdom off till tomorrow. Seize the day. That's in Luke. When uh, I entered analytic training, one of my teachers described the difference between counseling and analysis like this. He said, uh, people in analysis are true shoppers. People in counseling are people who are trying to get out of the rain. What's that mean? Well, suppose that you're downtown when downtown used to be downtown. This is a long time ago. Suppose you're downtown and it starts raining and people go into the department store. Some are in the department store just to get out of the rain. But some are in there really to shop. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting out of the rain. I want to tell you that. So there's even a proverb about that you know you got to have sense enough to get out of the rain but it's not the same as shopping <clears throat> this is why Jesus insisted that the new life required to walk his way required such a complete change and renewal of personality that it was like being born again and this is one reason I'm sure that Jesus used children as an example um, because a child is in contact with the inner world. A child doesn't let the ego get in the way. They're not split apart. They have a flowing relationship with everything. And I can hear somebody say, yeah, but you can't go through life acting like a kid. I agree. We need decorum. But more, we need awareness. And we need integration. And I think that with awareness and integration, love and compassion, decorum will take care of itself. So the principle is, if I know myself, I will know God. And if I know God, I will know myself. Now, whatever else you believe about Jesus, whether you are a religious conservative or a religious liberal, I think everybody will agree that Jesus knew God. We live now almost directly across the street from the Jung Center. And uh, the Jung Center was established in Houston in the mid-1950s, um, an educational center devoted to the writings and work of Carl Jung. And um, above the door of the Jung Center is a phrase in Latin, and this phrase uh, was in Carl Jung's study, and it is on his tombstone, and it is in my study here as well, in my office over here above the door. It's a Latin phrase that when translated reads, 
Invited or not invited, God is present. This is why when Jung said, do you believe in God? He said, no, I know God. So Jesus knew God. Thomas Merton knew God. You knew God. I aspire to know God. But I'm trapped in a clear glass world just like you. I've certainly had hints of transcendence in my life. And by transcendence, I don't mean something that's up there. Transcendence is, the word trans never means up. It always means across. Transcendence is what cuts across your life. Wakes you up. Gets your attention. So with that in mind, I want you to listen to Carl Jung's definition of God. And some of you may not like it, but just rest with it for a minute. Carl Jung said, to this day, God is the name by which I designate all things which cross my willful path violently and recklessly. All things which upset my subjective views, plans, and intentions and change the course of my life for better or worse. Knowing self and God is a process that knocks out clear glass windows. By that, I mean it punctures all the ego's precious projections and perceptions. It feels like the end of the world. And for the ego, it is. It's what Jesus meant when he said, unless you die... You can't have life. He wasn't talking about physical death. The foundation on which the journey into awareness is built consists of love, honesty, and freedom. Now, you use other words if you like. Um, I would encourage you not to make them religious words. Compassion, justice, equality. But... Um, whatever words you use, they have to include everybody. They have to include everything. Now, as I said, Jung's definition of God may not rest well with you. But there are some facts about life that it's best for us to embrace. So I want to read you some other lines that I use every day, every single day of my life as part of my own daily spiritual practice. And um, they'll be in the summary that goes out on Tuesday. I commend these to you, that you read them, that you embrace them, that you make them part of your world. The first one is, I am the nature, I'm of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. I can. One of the things that kicked me down this path was, uh, and I've told the story before, it's not my notes, but on the first day of going out on rounds in the hospital back in the 60s when we were too young to know what the war, we were babies, we shouldn't have been doing that. And we were scared to death because we knew we'd be seeing people in crisis and people where they've been death and all that. And so some of our group expressed some anxiety about that. And the, the, the psychiatrist who was our supervisor was such a wise guy and um, the wise ass too, but he was a wise man. And uh, somebody expressed anxiety, and he said, um, "Don't worry about it. Don't look. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Just go in the room, uh, go in the ER. Just be a non-anxious presence. <coughs> you going to do that when you're terrified." And I remember he wa he he walked out of the room. He opened the door, grabbed the door handle, and he looked around. And there were no women in my training group. He just said, "Gentlemen, let me tell you something." If you're lucky, you will grow old, get sick, and die. If you're lucky. If you're not lucky, you'll get hit by a truck. Have a nice day. <laughs> Walked out of the room. I'll never forget that. I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. I cannot escape having ill health. 
I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. All that is near and dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There's no way to escape being separated from them. I inherit the results of my acts of body, speech, and mind. My actions are my continuation. This is the one meaning of the word karma. What we do creates how we are, and how we are creates how we will be. So that if we practice fear and anger and hatred, those become the habits of our lives. And when we practice peace, love, joy, patience, and humility, those five things, they become our lives. And some have to cut across sometimes to wake us up, to get our attention about this. One of my favorite Zen teaching stories is of this uh, samurai warrior who goes to the Zen master. Zen master sitting as Zen master sit cross-legged and meditating. Zen warrior walks up to him and kicks him and says, Hey, master, tell me about heaven and hell. What can I learn about heaven and hell? And Zen master looks up at him and says, I couldn't teach you anything. You're filthy, you're dirty, you're disgusting. Get out of here. Nobody spoke to his, in, to his samurai warrior like that. Nobody. So he just stood there stunned by what the Zen master said. And the Zen master looked up at him and said, Are you deaf, you ignorant man? Get out of my sight. I don't want to see you. The Zen master was furious. He pulled his sword in there to kill the Zen master. And the Zen master looked up at him and said, That's hell. And the samurai warrior overcome with awareness that he had created his own hell and that this Zen master was willing to sacrifice him life, his life to teach him that lesson was so overwhelmed with gratitude and, and, and whatever. And he started to weep and his hands went down and his sword went back in his scabbard and the Zen master said, and that's heaven. Only when we realize that we can find what we're looking for by looking within can we really take a spiritual path. We have to look life squarely in the eye and see it for what it is. I'm of the nature to grow old, get sick, and die, and so is everyone I love. There is suffering on the human path. And that suffering is not going to go away. But what we learn on the spiritual path is that the one who suffers goes away. And that's heaven. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. <clears throat>